Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network, the podcast that promises to stay physically distant but not emotionally distant from you. We hope everyone is staying healthy and safe. This episode starts with Christy covering Bunny Kingdom, Ruel reviews Sorcery City, I discuss Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small, Ruth talks about cartographers, and Sarah reviews Isle of Cats. One of my favorite game mechanisms is card drafting. You get to look at a big hand of cards, pick your favorite, and build your strategy as you go. Some games, like Sushi Go, which Mike reviewed in episode 45, focus mainly on the drafting itself, whereas in other games, the drafting happens in the context of something larger. Bunny Kingdom is one such game, smoothly combining card drafting with territory building on a central board. The central board in Bunny Kingdom depicts a landscape made of several different terrain types, plains, fields, forests, seas, and mountains. This landscape is divided into a 10 by 10 grid, creating 100 spaces for your bunnies to inhabit. Each player has their own color of plastic bunnies that they are aiming to put out on the board in order to occupy those spaces and ultimately score points. Each space is depicted once in a deck of cards. So for example, there's a card that represents Forest Space A2. If you draft that card, you get to claim A2 by putting your bunny there. The game consists of four rounds of drafting, and you will score your territories at the end of each round. However, there are more game elements involved in scoring beyond the number and configuration of your claimed spaces. The various terrain types can produce resources for your bunnies to harvest. Some resources are already present on the board when you claim a space. Forest spaces produce wood, sea spaces produce fish, and field spaces produce carrots. Plains and mountains do not produce resources on their own, but there are cards you can draft to add so-called luxury resources, such as mushrooms, pearls, gems, and gold. These resources must be added to a designated terrain type indicated on the card, so you have to have an available spot that matches in order to use them. You can also build buildings on your claimed spaces. The buildings are plastic pieces that have one, two, or three spires on them. You build buildings by drafting cards that have buildings depicted on them. For both buildings and luxury resources, everyone waits to play those until the end of the round. That way, you have the opportunity to see which other territories you can claim before deciding where to place those items. Buildings and resources are important because at the end of the round, you score each of your clusters of adjacent territories, which are called fiefs. Your score for each fief is the number of spires on all of your buildings in that fief times the number of different resource types the fief produces. It can be a little unwieldy to go through and count everything up. I feel like Bunny Kingdom could have used some score sheets to help the process along, but the concept itself of strength times wealth or buildings times resources, is easy enough to follow. In addition to territory cards, resource cards, and building cards, there are also a number of endgame scoring cards in the mix. Some of these cards are worth straight points. Others award you points for doing certain things and can therefore shape your objectives in the game. It can be tough sometimes to deny yourself immediate expansion or building opportunities in order to take one of these cards, but they can make a big difference at the end of the game. By tying the mechanism of card drafting to the element of territory building on a shared board, Bunny Kingdom creates a bunch of wonderfully crunchy decisions. Do I want to expand my territory? 
Do I want to enrich my existing territory and make it more valuable? Would it be better to take something that would give me points at the end of the game, even though I'd have fewer bunnies on the board in the meantime? And of course, the classic drafting question, should I be taking something that would be really good for my opponent? The scoring system of Bunny Kingdom encourages you to build up a few fiefs with lots of buildings and resources so you can get those multipliers going. But in doing so, you may be passing around so many of the territory cards that you let your opponents connect vast swaths of land. Ask me how I know. I just can't say enough good things about all of the now versus later, here versus there, and me versus them aspects that are involved in your decisions, and that is Bunny Kingdom's best strength. As for weaknesses, some may find the bits to be small and fiddly, and counting up your score at the end of each round requires you to do some visual and mathematical legwork with those bits. I personally find that the planning and execution that I've done throughout the round helps me through that legwork because I'm already familiar with what I put on the board. Bunny Kingdom has charming, delightful art by Paul Mafayon that I enjoy even when the board gets cluttered. If you like cute animals and vibrant landscapes, you should check out this game. It is designed by Richard Garfield and published by Yellow. If you have a first edition copy, I do recommend getting the larger board from Yellow, which is free as long as you are able to pay shipping. To my knowledge, all subsequent printings have the larger board, so if you buy a copy now, you will probably be all set. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening and stay well. As a wizard architect in Sorcerer City, you attempt to wield your magical powers to build and rebuild your district over five years. You can lay out your streets to produce money, influence, prestige, and raw magic, but so can your rival wizards. Will you earn the most prestige and be crowned the head wizard of Sorcerer City? Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Sorcerer City, a tile-laying game designed by Scott Caputo with art by Noah Adelman, Lena Cossett, David Kegg, and Damian Mamaliti and published by Druid City Games in 2019. One to six players take on the roles of wizard architects, and each receives a set of shuffled starting tiles. During the real-time build phase, you'll draw tiles one at a time, placing them adjacent to other tiles in your play area. Each tile has one or more colors, and can be rotated as needed, but once played, they cannot be moved except by a special ability. In normal mode, you have two minutes to build your district. Your market tiles are the scoring tiles in your district. Each has a goal that scores one or four resources if you complete it. For example, you'll gain influence for a group of three or more red tiles grouped together, or you'll earn money for two or more tiles with a shield on it that's adjacent to another shield tile. After scoring tiles, you'll convert any raw magic to one of the other resources, money, influence, or prestige. The player with the most influence in the round earns the top influence reward and gets to buy new tiles using the money they've generated, followed by everyone else. Finally, Prestige tokens are awarded and district tiles are reshuffled, with a monster tile added to each player's set of tiles. After five rounds, the most prestige points wins. Sorcerer City takes two classic mechanisms, Dominion's deck building and Carcassonne's tile lane, and mashes them up into a fun mix of real-time and turn-based play. It's the real-time aspect that surprised me. While I enjoy building a combo-rich stack of district tiles, I love trying to play these tiles as the timer wound down. It made for a frantic and engaging two minutes every round. You're not able to optimize every tile's position, but that's part of the fun. Adding the monsters after each round, though, is what drives the game, and it makes it more than just a Carcassonne ripoff. There are 14 monsters total in the game, each with different abilities, and only four are used in each game. 
Level 1 monsters like the dragon are pretty straightforward. When you place a dragon tile in your district, it destroys any tile adjacent to it, removing it from the game. What I loved about having the dragon in the game is that you could use its ability to fend off later round monsters. So if you had a level 2 monster like a demon show up and then draw your dragon, you could place it next to the demon to destroy it. Using your wizardly architect powers like this will no doubt have your rivals calling you Merlin, or at the very least David Blaine. Be aware that monster tiles could be a snag in gameplay. By the time you add that fourth monster into the final round, it may be a bit much to remember what each monster does. I like to review the monster abilities before each round, but sometimes, especially during your first game, you may have to pause a round when someone's forgotten what a monster does. After you've completed your district, you'll count up the four currencies you've gathered from your tile placement. Raw magic is used strictly to convert into another currency, so each player simultaneously chooses one by revealing a card for money, influence, or prestige. Since all currencies are public knowledge, you can usually guess what others will be doing. But it's those times when players are close to numbers that make for a nice tense moment. Is Michelle going to convert her 5 raw magic into influence, thus allowing her to pass Lauren to the first influence reward? And if Tila sees her doing this, will she convert hers into money so she can afford better point scoring tiles? Not all is perfect in Sorcerer City though. First is the table hog. The market and influence rewards sections take up a lot of space. And of course you'll need room to build your district. By the time the final round rolls around, you'll be bumping elbows and tiles with your opponents. My other complaint has to do with colorblind accessibility. Sorcerer City has four main colors, and with my red-green colorblindness, I have trouble distinguishing between tiles that have prestige, green, and influence, red. Thankfully, there are subtle differences in the art for the colors that can be used to identify each one. So for red, I know that the art always has a turret, while the green art doesn't. I just wish these differences would have been more prominent or easier to identify quickly. Despite these complaints, I really enjoy Sorcerer City. It was also nice to see a solo mode included. It's easy to play since it's based on the two player rules. You'll randomly select two mystery player cards for each year to determine how much influence you'll be going against after each round. Also, monsters are added differently. In the solo game, they're put on top of the corresponding color tiles in the market. If a monster cannot be placed on a matching color, then you lose immediately. Otherwise, any tile that you buy that has a monster on it must be added to your deck. It's a different type of challenge from the multiplayer game, and it manages to be a fun variant when you're taking some time for yourself. Thanks to Druid City Games for the review copy of Sorcerer City. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the Fiby. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Agricola, as covered last episode by Meeple Lady, came out in 2007 and was a massive hit. So a sequel of sorts only makes sense. And in 2012, Uwe Rosenberg started his now-recurring theme of releasing smaller two-player versions of his big hits when he released Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small. Which I suppose is a play on the book All Creatures Great and Small, which I read and thoroughly enjoyed back when I was considering becoming a vet. Alas, that career eluded me. Darn allergies. But in Agricola, all creatures big and small, you get to create your own animal farm as you breed sheep, pigs, cows, and horses, all while avoiding the actual muck and said allergies. In Agricola, all creatures big and small, you are ostensibly collecting and raising animals. Ostensibly because you actually will spend most of your time collecting resources to build and expand your starting 3x2 field. Because that's all you start with. A 3x2 field, a small cottage, and 9 fences in your supply that you can't even build yet because you don't have any wood or stone. All Creatures Big and Small is a worker placement game just like its older sibling. And just like its older sibling you need to plan in advance because right now all you can do is keep one measly animal in your cottage. 
But worry not, you have three strong and sturdy family members ready to help. They can collect wood, stone, and reed. Sound familiar? Wood and stone can be used for building fences. Wood, stone, and reed together are used to upgrade your home or build new buildings to store additional animals. A closed-off square of pasture can hold two animals of the same type, which is great because two animals of the same type produce a third during each breeding phase between rounds, except that third can't fit in the pasture as it only holds two. And if you don't have space for all your animals, you're going to have to let some run off. You could either fence in a larger space or add a feeding trough to your current space. Feeding troughs double the number of animals a field can hold. Alternatively, if you had the resources, you could build a stable which holds five animals. So great, you've mitigated the current situation for another two rounds. Because that's what all creatures big and small is about. Mitigation. Just like in regular Agricola, only one person can go to a space each round. So if someone beats you to that two-stone spot or to the cow space, well, tough luck. Thankfully, for just a two-player game, Agricola ACBS is a little more forgiving than its counterpart as there are two wood spaces and two stone spaces. Just for each, the resources accrue faster in one spot than the other. As for the animal spaces, there is one for a pig, a horse, and a cow that each get refilled before each round, but don't really accrue each round. Instead, if the reed isn't taken, then a sheep is added to it. Likewise for the pig and horse space, though naturally any cow left behind between rounds gets a pig companion in its space. That's just logic. As with many worker placement games, the trick is to let resources build up before you take them, but still get them before your opponent does. The last space in the game is the one that allows you to add a 1x3 field extension to your board, plus take all the fence pieces that have piled up on it. Because at the start of each round, you add one of the eight fence pieces from the supply to that space. This is both how you get additional fences to build, but it is also the timer for the game, letting you know when the eight rounds are up and it's time for final scoring. Scoring is similar to, but not as punishing as in regular Agricola. You get negative three points for each animal type you have zero to three in, so ideally you'd want four of each type. From there, the scoring varies a little depending on the rarity of the animal. For instance, you get one point for eight to ten sheep, but only five to six horses. To gain the maximum amount for any animal of six points, you need 16 sheep, 14 pigs, 13 cows, or 12 horses. Which is doable, but at the cost of ignoring other parts of your game. You also get four points for every completely filled extension board, and points for the buildings you built. When Original Agricola came out, it quickly rose to the top of the pile as the number one game on BoardGameGeek. So naturally I took a look, and goodness that is a not good starter game in my opinion. I've since played it several times, and it has never really risen above misery farm status for me. It's just too convoluted, too mean, and the actions you get blocked out of make no sense to me. But all creatures big and small is just my speed. It's a manageable number of actions. There's no family growth, so both you and your opponent only ever have three workers. There's no feeding your family between rounds. You could spend your first couple rounds just collecting resources to build up your farm, and no one would care. And lastly, while it is smaller, and you and your opponent are still competing for limited resources available each round, I don't find this game to be as mean. Maybe it's the shorter play length, but mostly it's because there are multiple good spaces, and the game encourages diversification, so it's not likely your opponent will block you from getting the pigs every round. Add in fantastic Clemens Franz art and adorable sheep, pig, cow, and horse animeeples, and I was sold. 
So what's the downside? Well, it seems we're currently between printings. The last printing was from Lookout Games back in 2018 and was a big box edition that contained both of the More Buildings expansions. But do not fret, because Digidice and Asmodee Digital have released Android, iOS, and Steam implementations, and for $4.99 on Android and iOS, I think that's a steal. The implementation is solid and includes a tutorial, games online with friends, though the lack of a back button on some of the actions and the AI opponents are a little mixed, but overall I've been very pleased with it on my old iPad. Anyway, that's Agricola All Creatures Big and Small. If you have any questions or would like to discuss the game further, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. Today I'm talking about a game themed about exploring and mapping out a new land, a welcome bit of escapism as many of us find ourselves having to stay home. Released in 2019 by Thunderworks Games, Cartographers, a role-player tale, is a new flip-and-fill game that's, funnily enough, set in the world of Episode 6's role-player. Designed by Jordi Adden, the game has players being sent out to explore a new, potentially dangerous land, filling out a map as they go, in order to impress the Queen with their discoveries upon their return home. We've previously talked about Welcome To and Second Chance in Episodes 42 and 62 of the podcast, respectively. Cartographers uses a deck of cards similarly to those games, providing players with a choice of what to add to their individual sheets with each card flip. But unlike those games, and many roll and writes, the scoring in this game changes with each game session. During setup, four scoring cards will be laid out for everyone to see. Players play four rounds or seasons during the game, and at the end of each season, two of the four cards are assessed. This means that each of the dealt out scoring cards will end up scoring just twice by the end of the game. The scoring cards give points, or reputation, for having certain features next to each other, or of particular sizes, amongst other stipulations. This more interesting scoring system is one of the things that I find sets cartographers apart from other games of this genre, as it makes players adapt to the current game setup. And since everything's laid out at the beginning, that doesn't mean there's no opportunity to plan and strategize. During each round of cartographers, players flip cards from the exploration deck and resolve them until the time values of revealed cards reaches the time threshold of the current season. Basically, this represents the time spent traveling. Each exploration card asks the player to choose either one of two shapes to draw in a particular terrain, or one of two terrain types to draw in a particular shape. With five total terrain types in the game, and those scoring goals looking for them to be arranged in different ways, this can be a tricky choice, especially as you're able to flip and rotate the shape to place it anywhere on the map you can make it fit. Some shapes also offer the player a chance to cross off a coin on their player sheet. And since crossed off coins score at the end of every single season, early coins can be lucrative. Players fill out their map in this way, discovering villages, forests, and so on. But this is not a safe and easy trip. An ambush card is shuffled into the deck at the beginning of each season. And if it appears, players must trade sheets and then draw the pictured monster shape onto the sheet they will receive. They then hand it back to their owner and discard the ambush card. spaces next to monsters will score negatively at the end of each season, so this gives players a chance to mess with each other by making opponents spend time surrounding the threat. Another ambush card will be shuffled into the deck at the start of every season, regardless of whether the previously added ones have been resolved, so it is possible to have multiple attacks come out in a later round. 
Double-sided map sheets add a bit more variety in the positions of mountains, which provide coins, ruins, which affect the placement options of some cards, and the presence of a large ravine in the middle of the B-side that players have to work around. Combined with the scoring variety and the exploration deck being large enough that you won't see close to all cards in a round, and Cartographers doesn't get stale, even when played back to back to back. And if you're stuck home alone, the game also comes with a solo mode built into the rules. The solo mode only involves two rule changes. It's easy enough to learn, players simply resolve ambush cards by looking for the symbol on the card denoting where to place it, and at the end of the game they'll subtract a number representing the difficulty of the scoring conditions they faced from their score, and then compare their final total to a table to figure out just how effective they were at mapping the new land. Another thing that I thought I'd point out given current circumstances is that everything in this game is open knowledge, so players could easily play cartographers over Skype or other video chat options, with only one person needing to have a copy of the game. This is especially true because other participants can easily download player sheets from the publisher's website, as Thunderworks Games has made it available. Cartographers, like many flip-and-fill or roll-and-write games, is quick-playing, easy to teach, and can be made a lot more fun if you simply add some colored pencils or markers into the mix. The game itself encourages players to draw a family crest at the top of their map and give themselves an appropriately fantasy medieval title, adding to its sense of story. At the end of the game, players have created unique, often beautiful maps, and as I've said in the past, I love games that let me create something. Cartographers is perfect for days when you're isolated, as well as days when you're able to go out, since it is, after all, a nicely portable package. I consider this game a must-try if you enjoy this genre of game, and honestly, it's my favorite of the bunch. I highly recommend checking it out, and until next time, feel free to check in with me and give some gaming at home suggestions on Twitter, at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening. Unless your job is an essential service, you're probably like me, spending all your time at home these days. At least I hope that's what you're doing. And you're probably, like me, missing your regular board game group and settling in for family game nights and solo games. While we all figure out how to play board games with social distancing, let's talk about Isle of Cats, a new game that plays great in small groups and solo. Isle of Cats was designed by Frank West and published by City of Games. The official release date is 2019, but I backed it on Kickstarter and I got my copy in January 2020. To be honest, when I heard that Isle of Cats was a polyomino game about cats, I really didn't need to know anything else. In the game, each player is a ship captain at a remote island, the Isle of Cats, trying to rescue the cats who live there before an evil lord arrives. First you draft cards that give you special abilities, endgame scoring, and most importantly, baskets to gather the cats in. Then you collect the cats, represented by polyomino tiles, and place them on your ship. Isle of Cats theme is a remarkable combination of vivid, well-executed, and odd. Everyone I've played with was drawn in by the theme. You're rescuing cats! I love my mental image of a fleet of ships floating baskets full of fish towards the island, waiting for cats to jump in, then hauling up the baskets with the cats patiently waiting inside. I'm sure it would work exactly like that. Why just cats and not other animals from the island? Eh, try not to think about it. Also, don't think too much about the cats that don't get rescued. At the end of every round, any cat that wasn't collected flees and the tile goes back in the box. More than one person I've played Isle of Cats with has expressed dismay when they realize there's no way to rescue the fleeing cats. Those cats will definitely be victims of the evil lord. Maybe odd as it is, the theme is a little too real. 
Most of the polyomino games I've played are fairly simple, and I love that Isle of Cats is a bit crunchier. Note that I have not played Feast for Odin, the heaviest polyomino game I know of. But in Isle of Cats, there are several different ways to get points. The cats come in different colors and score based on families, which are groups of the same color clustered together. The ship is divided into rooms, and there's a sizable penalty for each room that isn't completely filled by the end of the game. And the endgame scoring cards, called Lessons, give you goals to work towards that can really shape the way you play. Like, you might get a bonus for having no more than three colors of cat on your ship. Or points for each lonely cat that isn't touching any cats of the same color. You can't do everything, which prompts you to make interesting choices throughout the game. Keeping track of the ways to score and lose points might be a bit much for younger kids, and luckily Isle of Cats has a set of family cards with simpler rules. I haven't played the family rules, but I have played the regular rules with kids, and I think the 8 and up guideline is pretty accurate. In my game, there was an 8-year-old who played by pairing up with an adult, and an older kid who did just fine on her own. The base game of Isle of Cats plays from 1 to 4 players. There's an expansion called Late Arrivals that adds up to 6 players. However, I've played Isle of Cats with 6 people, and I don't recommend it. With so much to keep track of, the game felt out of control. Turn order changing every round was confusing. It was hard to keep track of the public lessons that score for everyone. And even with fewer people, this game is a table eater. With six, it was hard for the players at the end of the table to know what was happening because they were physically so far away. I'm all in favor of complex games, but six-player Isle of Cats was not a good kind of complexity. Besides, unless you have a large family, you aren't going to be playing six-player games anytime soon. Fortunately, Isle of Cats is much more manageable in smaller groups. I love it with two players, I've heard it's great at three, and I really like the solo game. The solo rules pitch you against an automaton who is your sister. Yes, you have to rescue more cats than your sister does. She doesn't have a ship to place cats on, instead she has a set of color cards which give her a point bonus for each cat of that color on your ship. She also has lesson cards of her own, and again she scores them based on the cats on your ship. You really have to pay attention to those solo lesson cards. If you're not careful, you can clobber yourself by inadvertently creating a ship full of cats that score your sister a ton of points. My only serious reservation about Isle of Cats is visual accessibility. The biggest problem is that it is very difficult to distinguish the rooms on your ship once you start filling them. There are tiny symbols in the grid that denote the room, but they're faint and difficult to see. For the first several games, we had to keep the rulebook open to a page with a color-coded map of the rooms. Filling the rooms is worth so many points, they really should have color-coded the board itself. The colors of the cats themselves can also be difficult to tell apart, especially in dim or fluorescent lighting. Although, each color has distinctive markings, which makes that a bit less of a problem. Still, it's clear that the art style they wanted was way more important than making the game usable, which to me is just inexcusable. That said, I do recommend Isle of Cats. It plays well in small groups and has solid rules for families and for solo, which is what we should all be doing right now. And watching your ship fill up with adorable cats is just so satisfying. And that's Isle of Cats. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you have any tips on how to set up a video call for my game group. Then I really want to hear from you. You've been listening to The Five Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. 
Follow us on Twitter at Bye Bye Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here on the Five Bye and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash games. Thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.